Good evening and welcome to Slam and Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a brand new guest. I'm proud to announce I have Coral Anika Teal on my show. Now, Coral's experiences at the hands of her tormentors, including members of the People of Praise, are heinous enough to disturb even the most seasoned social worker. The atrocities include serial rape, kidnapping, domestic assault, involuntary servitude, ritual humiliation, denial of medical care, financial exploitation, social ostracism, psychological torture, and disinheritance. For Coral, all of that is immeasurable suffering pales in comparison to the agony she has endured at the res- as a result of her court-mandated separation and emotional alienation from her eight children. Now, we have a lot to talk about because she's also written a book called Bonchea, Making Light of the Dark, which shares her search for freedom and light in a society based on patriarchal religion and laws. And it openly speaks about the ideas and beliefs in our society, which fosters sexism, racism, the denigration of human rights, and the intolerance of indifference. And her documentation exposes the dark side of human nature when all people are not valued. A healthy society must have courage to address these issues, speak about them, examine them, and bring them to light. The indifference encourages silent violence. The type of violence she experienced in her home, in community, religious circles, and the judicial system. Now, I welcome you to the show, Coral. I We have a lot to talk about, and I know we're going to end up doing two podcasts because your case was multifaceted, multi-layered, and I know we're going to br- probably break this up into two parts. So I welcome you to the Slam the Gavel podcast. Thank you so much, Marianne. And I also honor your survival, your very survival, and your, your audience. Many of them I know are trauma survivors. And thank you so much. And your wonderful book, Bonchea, Making Light of the Dark. How did you come up with the word Bonchea as in the beginning of your book? And how did you start writing it? Well, um, after um, I sought safety in 1996, um, I sadly lost custody and eventually contact of my eight children, including my nursing infant. Um, Everything can be found in my book. It is long and detailed and multi-layered, like you said, but um, most of the people in my life fled. Um, There was no one, pretty much. I really didn't have supportive family, and the people in my life were in extreme fundamental cults, and they supported my abuser, even knowing there was marital rape and physical violence and uh, ongoing other horrors of torture. Um, So, wonderfully, I met this Native American woman, Cheyenne Cherokee medicine woman in Salem, Oregon, and she used to just be with me through the um, moments of trauma, and I was definitely in shock at this time in 96, and she would just pray with me in her own way and always end her prayers with the word bonshia, and I 
remember when I first heard it, I asked her, oh, what a beautiful word, what does it mean? And she said, it means it's Yaki Indian for out of the darkness in the light. And I said, if I ever get to write a book, that's what I'm gonna use, Bon Shia. And so I, my subtitle is called Making Light of the Dark. And I do believe that all our horrors and trauma and tragedies can become our own medicine. And our own medicine can also, good medicine can help assist others and their journey back to self and wholeness. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you've written that book, uh, yes. being that it is, you know, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I'm so glad to have you on to talk about this. And, you know, with your book, you know, people often say and ask me, like, how do you start writing a book? I'm sure you probably get the same questions. How do you start writing it? Do you you start at the beginning or do you start at the end? How did you do this? Thank you. Um, I was thinking a couple years after the divorce, I attempted to uh, visit my children. Uh, Sometimes he he and his mother, Helen Warner, my ex-husband, Marty Warner, and his mother, Helen Warner, would allow me to see the children, even though I had a court order to see them every other weekend or a Wednesday night. Um, Sometimes I get to see them, sometimes not. Sometimes they'd leave the property on time, sometimes not. So I didn't have the monies for more court and police, um, you know, to, it was just a, very traumatic, even the visitations. Um, and one time, um, my children and ex-husband wanted me to take a walk in the woods with them. And patient, I attempted to comply, be friendly, even with my abuser, rapist, ex-husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, one time, I was sexually assaulted on the property. My ex had all the children go back to the home and he began to sexually assault me, even though I was no longer his wife. And I then at that time knew I needed to leave. Also, my children were very traumatized after visitation. They did not want to go home to be with their father and they'd scream and cry and he'd, he'd whip them, you know, for just crying when they got out of the car. And uh, some of them said they wanted to run away from him and be with me. And I said, well, the police will just take you back. So my mentors and doctors recommended I leave due to loving my children and because they loved me, they were being harmed. So mm-hmm. I did leave the state. I legally changed my name in Salem, Oregon, uh, adopted my Danish relative's last name, Teal, and uh, went out of state. And when I got there, I received just numerous court motions, court orders, more ongoing court, which lasted 23 years. I've been in court Mm. three years uh, to now almost 50 court hearings. I've been sued for twice that I earned as a disabled woman, even while living out of my car. My ex-husband even took our court case to the Oregon State of Appeals. While I was living out of my car, I was trying to go to college to better my life um, in 2004. And that's when the um, motions of the court the Oregon State Appeals um, I received, and I had to quit college to study law because no attorney will um, advise you unless you can retain them, and I had no monies and legal help. So I wrote my own legal brief that year, and eventually it was dismissed, but part of the um, their 
position, they were wanting to sue me for another $50,000 of monies. I had no monies. I was living under poverty level in my car. He also wanted me to be ordered uh, state supervised visitation. And I told the court I'm not mentally ill. I pulled, proved my mental wellness to the court. I've been under six psychological exams, often four hours each, um, and by some of the top doctors in Oregon. So I'm not a criminal. I'm not mentally ill. I not I do not use drugs or alcohol. And so I will not submit to this. So the case was dismissed two years later. But I realized my life was just going to now be about court. That my ex-husband, in many words, said that they weren't going to kill me. They'd break me. And uh, court is definitely a very breaking experience. Um, often the judges are very much similar to our perpetrators. They Judge um, Alvin Norblad in Salem, Oregon, laughed about the rapes I had suffered um, my childhood. Um, anyway, I do download some of the transcripts in my book, and it's a good example for society to learn about of how you're treated in the courtroom and, and ongoing depositions, which I've been under 45 hours of depositions, too. At the time, I was living in hiding. Um, before the temporary uh, custody hearings. Um, so a couple years out, I'm out of state, and I realize that my book needed to be written, my story, and I'm not college educated. I did not know anything about writing, but I definitely knew my story, and I knew who I was, who I am, and I... I just started writing um, to my mentor, Dr. Barbara May. She was professor of nursing at Linfield College. Uh, she used my book as a college text several years ago, and I've been a guest speaker there. Um, the nursing students used my book uh, as studying domestic violence, trauma recovery, uh, judicial injustice. And um, so I started writing, and basically words will come down like rain is what mm -hmm. I tell people. And I also... You know, as a good warning, I share with people, it's like a healing crisis. You will bleed. It will hurt. Um, but I do believe these documents need to be there. I, I share with people, I believe Mother Earth would swallow me up if I did not tell my story and tell the truth. And I spent six years documenting my story. I, I used to be a court reporter and uh, I downloaded the transcripts and put them in, in the book. And I do have... 23 years and all the transcripts, the videotapes of court, the audio tapes, even of a judge laughing about my rapes. And um, so nobody has sued me in the 18 years my book has been out. And it was republished last year because the last two years my book has received national and international attention while married to my ex-husband, Marty Warner in Independence, Oregon. I was a member of the same uh, people praise community cult that our new Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett belongs to. She's from South Bend. Um, this out, this branch is, was in Corvallis, Oregon, and I was in the cult for several years. I did not want to be a part of it. The whole cult is about the subjugation and oppression of women. We were demanded to obey our husbands in all things. His head, it was all under headship, and also I had assigned, I was assigned a handmaid. Um, it's not too far off from the Handmaid's Tale series. Mm -hmm. I was also under the leaders. Um, 
headship to. And uh, there was crimes committed against me by the people of praise leaders and my ex-husband. I was um, interrogated in the middle of the night, kidnapped literally after I'd had a miscarriage and a DNC at a hospital. My doctor saved my life and I um, had a second miscarriage, but I, when I went to the meeting I was forced to be at, I could not go shopping with them because I was still hemorrhaging. And so I said, I gotta, I gotta go home. My doctor wants me um, to have bed rest. And so when I got home, a car was waiting and I was forced in the car and I was taken in front of all the leaders in Corvallis, Oregon and called poisonous and ridiculed and humiliated. And I just wanted to go home and rest. And after that, I was shunned by the community. I was forced to sit on the floor outside of St. Mary's Catholic Church meeting rooms in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, people weren't allowed to look at me. And even in Corvallis, Oregon, many friends of the People Praise community, and some of them included counselors I tried to go to, or priests I tried to seek help from, uh, they were all friends with the People Praise leaders, and I was further harmed or dismissed by them too. So I wrote a letter to the Senate and Judiciary Committee in October of 2020 after about 40 interviews. Um, I was interviewed by the Washington Post, AP, Guardian, Reuters, uh, Newsweek three times, and Newsweek even published excerpts of this letter, but I uh, documented the crimes committed against me, and this letter is at my website and also published in my book and was sent to the Judiciary Committee. I was not allowed to testify I had doctors, nurses, affidavits um, to uh, substantiate uh, what had happened and witnesses. And I have documented this by video with an excerpt, uh, expert, uh, Stephen Hassan, Dr. Stephen Hassan, who often teaches um, on, he's on TV often, and um, he videotaped me and also other witnesses and doctors that had witnessed what I experienced and the abuse I suffered. So um, I wasn't allowed to testify. Senator Lindsey Graham would not allow me, but that's also part of my story. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were threatened in that cult that if we left the cult or marriage, we'd lose our children. And I, I saw another woman um, leave without her children. Uh, it traumatized me. So all through my marriage, I knew that was over my head and I had no support. Um, but yes, in 98, I started um, just writing letters to my mentor of, what happened as a child, what happened. Um, I call it going over the scar map of our psyche. That's mm -hmm. just a term for anybody. If you're a wounded warrior, anyone that's traveling on this earth journey to go over the scar map of your psyche. What led to this? What led to that? And that's basically how my book is written. I start at my childhood, which began with rape. And um, mm -hmm. suddenly, as a young child at six years old, I visited where I thought my great uncle worked, but it was the Walla Walla State Prison. And he had executed his 16-year-old daughter, had attempted to murder his wife, and had raped all his three daughters. And he only mm -hmm. did a few years in prison because our family and his sister, who was my grandmother, uh, visited him often and supported him. So he got out of prison. He wasn't supposed to be in our city, in Kenwick, Washington, as part of his parole. He wasn't supposed to be near young girls, but he lived with us in Kenwick near his ex-wife and remaining daughters. And I was put in his bedroom most every night for several years from six until about 10 um, by my mother and grandmother. My record and he allowed him to live in our home and I wasn't protected. So um, my voice 
was um, I lost my voice before it was ever formed as a young girl. Mm-hmm. And I begged for help and no one came or showed up. And uh, so even though I was a straight A student in high school, I graduated in Vancouver, Washington. I was a pilot at age 17. A lot of me was shut down and a lot of my voice was gone. And I was terrified of my abusers, even my mother, who severely abused me. And there was a lot of beatings in my childhood by my step-grandfather and, uh, and the rapes. And then my rapist, my great uncle, he lived with us when I was in junior high and I was uh, given the, the um, job to take care of him. He was trying to detox from his alcoholism and, and that was a very traumatizing year for me. He eventually left, um, but that was some of the basis of my life. And then I met my ex-husband during the fuel crisis while I was riding a bus, Vancouver, Portland and going to court reporter school. I never gave him my last name I didn't give him my phone number, but people on the bus were talking about my father due to the D.B. Cooper case. Talked about a lot. And my ex-husband must have taken his name down because he arrived at our home the next week. And I did not know how to get away from him either. So Mm. I just start the book by what led to this, what led to that. And I also have learned to cherish myself there was a lot that was out of control and out of control. And I, even as an adult, confronted my mother and grandmother, who then cut me out of their will. I built homes for my mom and my mother and dad. I took care of them. I took care of my brother. I helped them not lose their home by splitting wood and working for them as a young adult and young child. And yet I was given a dollar 10 years ago when my mother died. I was the last remaining person in the family. But Often when abusers come forward, you will be further abused. And that is the lesson I've learned out of all of this. But the book became um, a manuscript in 2000 from all these letters. I compiled them together and I had a wonderful friend, someone I admired, Judy Bennett in Oregon, who helped me edit and helped me pull out more of the story. When I first was going to print it, Um, my childhood was missing. I didn't put that part in the book. And they said, Coral, nobody will be able to understand your marriage adult life if they do not know this part. So I write it very graciously. I don't believe in uh, talking or writing about the horror. I just said this happened and Mm -hmm. these are responsible. So that's how the book came about. And I learned a lot about myself and our society as more of life unfolded. But My book was published in 2003. I was living out of my car at the time I finished writing. And I lived out of my car for over three years, just due to the ongoing court trauma. And then sadly, um, during this time, I had a a doctor after I lost my children and baby, I was in shock, but I had to go support myself and just uh, go on as I believe that's all life is about in three words, we go on. We don't move on. We don't forget. We go on. And so I worked a warehouse job. I worked at night at a restaurant. I tried to see my children when I could. I called them per court order, but they weren't allowed to talk to me. And eventually through the years, I received hate letter, hate letters from the children who loved me and the church, um, all of the above, Jewish, Catholic, Christian, Evangelical, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, my ex-husband's been involved in many 
denominations, but all of them have helped support my ex-husband. But this um, doctor, I saw Dr. Charles Kuttner after the, the time I was in shock. I saw him for two years until 98, but he introduced me to his mentor and best friend, a George Amiot, who was a VA unlicensed therapist for P PTSD, a former Marine. I guess we call him Marine, not ex-Marines, a former Marine mm -hmm. from the Vietnam era. And he was very popular within the VA and a Native American. Um, he... He then um, showed up in my life and I introduced him to all my friends. It had been three years since my divorce. I had not dated anybody, but I became involved for a few months and eventually the mask falls off and I was threatened by him. And he, since he was a friend of my doctor who gave me access to the, the courts and my children, it became a horrible triangle of a very qualified person, but I was, um, he did rob me of my IR, small IR account, account and credit cards. And when I had nothing more and wanted, I cut, out, I cut off ties to both of them. In 2000, George Amiot drove a distance to my apartment and beat and strangled me to an inch of my life. And uh, thankfully I had police officers living underneath me and they eventually apprehended him. And I had a restraining order for a while, but Sometimes it's more scary when you have a restraining order for a person who said they can take you out anytime they're a train recon marine and nobody will find you. And eventually I was able to tell them, well, at least I've had a restraining order. At least I have documentation that you did this to me. But I, I got a summary judgment against him for almost 35000 for just some of the debt I had and he never paid on it. So that's another portion mm -hmm. of the story why I lived in my car. Um, but there are many perpetrators uh, predators that show up in a trauma survivor's life that appear to be safe to communities, but they are mm -hmm. unsafe when they do target uh, trauma, trauma survivors. Um, but my, yeah, my book was published 2003, and then I republished in 2013 and put this chapter about Dr. Kuttner and George Amiot in the book and documented that part. And then I republished in 2001, due to the international and national attention, due to the people praise community. Is this praise community still in operation? Oh, yes, all over the world and throughout the United States from coast to coast. And there's not a huge amount of members, but most of them are part of the Catholic Church. They're a Catholic charismatic community. Many of their leaders are deacons. And basically, I would define them as psychopaths, sociopaths, um, basically, cults are all the same. They mm -hmm. run off greed, taking your money. One time they took the deed to our home to buy, they wanted to buy property, and thankfully the deal um, fell through. But uh, then you had to tithe to the, the group, which leaders mm -hmm. have monies, and they were able to put their children in college, and where some of the members are very poor and don't have the same advantage. But the cult is basically about the oppression of women. that someone of that ideology was going to sit on the highest court in the land. That's just terrible. I'm so sorry you went through that. Uh, and, and there are women still going through that in this yes. cult. Yes, and it's been a thankful, I think when one person comes out, I think that's what my <clears throat> said, when one woman speaks up, others follow. And that's true. 
Um, I was a lone voice at the beginning and then others who knew me, they did speak to the cult experts by video to testify for me. And then um, another year later, I believe it was the Washington Post put out a story of rape victims of the People Praise High School have come forward. They're now in their thirties, but rapes were covered up. Um, other women have come out recently that have been members of the cult. And uh, so I do believe we need to speak our truth, but I do say to victims, safety, safety, safety first. Mm -hmm. If you are not safe to speak, do not do so. And often, even for me, I get hate letters quite often from the far right or religious people for speaking about this cult, but it's documented. Um, and I, this is what happened to me. I'm an expert of my life. I know what happened. I have friends, people, witnesses. Thankfully, there were doctors um, in the cult at the time, and they have left and have testified too. Um, so I, for me, it's right to speak out. And I will continue to do so. And I feel my book too is a love letter to my children. I've not had contact with them since um, 98. I went into hiding and then eventually there was a court hearing I was not told about. I've been at 50 court hearings, but one in 99 took away my visitation rights and also sued me for twice that I earned. And uh, finally in uh, 2018, uh, friends put a GoFundRaiser after my 50th court hearing, a judge then um, agreed that I should pay the final 38,000, even though it was not a just judgment. Um, a GoFundRaiser uh, helped me pay off the last 3,800 to my ex-husband who said he was gonna give the monies equally to all of my eight children who had homes, jobs, and their health. Um, so I find that very degrading. Uh, but I got my passport back. I'm no longer threatened with jail, no longer threatened that the district attorney in Polk County would take away my driver's license. But the court hearings, um, all 50 of them start with my ex-husband calling me crazy, mentally mm -hmm. menti ill, and uh, other such words. And even the district attorney at my last case called me a liar, called me, told me I wasn't telling the truth about my rapes I'd suffered, although they're documented and I have a real live child. My eighth child was due to marital rape. I mm. suffered, um, I hemorrhaged after my seventh child, like many of my births, but I was at home without a doctor. Doctor's care and was not allowed to go to the hospital. And six months later, I collapsed from severe postpartum depression and exhaustion after 18 years and eight cults and abuse and beatings, um, further abuse from the cult leaders and isolation, homeschooling, uh, two to three hours sleep a night, home births, and ongoing pregnancies. I had 11 pregnancies and eight living children. I lost three pregnancies near four and a half to near five months along. And my doctor in Albany, Oregon, saved my life by DNCs, which are now um, saving a woman's life is quite threatened since Roe versus Wade has been overturned, but I'm glad he saved my life. I'm glad I had medical care. But um, yes, I collapsed in 93 and was pretty incapacitated for 20 months. I was, I stayed with my brother and a few friends, but during that time when my ex-husband was with me, um, he and his pastors and cult leaders exercised me for demons, called me a witch, called me a Jezebel spirit, told me if I believed in God, but wasn't in some secret sin that God had, would not have done this to me. And sadly, I think in a lot of patriarchal religious um, groups, they believe a uh, depression or some type of breakdown is some form of God cursing you. 
it is just a natural, it is, it is natural from exhaustion. Wounded warriors, many of them have been exhausted from war and frontline trauma. Uh, doctors, lawyers, anyone this can happen to. But I had a very unhealthy group of sociopaths, psychopaths around me and and I barely survived. I had to crawl out. I, call, I tell people it felt like being in a grave and crawling out, being buried alive with my own fingernails. And so even right now, when people are in my life, um, that is a gift because I've been around a lot of very um, harmful people. And uh, so when I let people in my life, it's a gift. But mm-hmm. barely survived that time and I was suicidal. I was not allowed doctor care. And uh, what few doctors did see me um, but they could only see me once and they wanted to see me alone and my ex-husband would not allow me to be alone with another mm. person. So I was raped during this time that I could not speak, I could not feed myself, could not clothe myself, could not shower, but I was raped and used sexually. And I was pregnant twice when baby died. I had another DNC after hemorrhaging. And the second baby I woke up in January of 2000, or 1995 and I was pregnant five months along with my eighth child and I realized I had lost almost two years of my life. And I do remember all the horror that happened to me. I um, talked to my doctor. He saw, he saw me, a friend took me to a doctor or my trusted physician, Dr. Charles South in Albany, Oregon. And he was just angry. And he told me to go get the best and use language I don't use in writing, but to get a best attorney and to divorce the son of a bee. And he was mm-hmm. just, he knew I'd been ill and nearly catatonic and also was pregnant. And it's against the law. Marital rape laws are now in all 50 states. And at that time, that was against the law. And when I did get safe in 99, I did file marital rape charges in two counties where I'd been raped in the district attorneys in Wasco County in Oregon and Polk County would not file charges. So my rapist sued me for child support and the state gave him my baby, even acknowledging that he abused me. And uh, so... It's a very twisted case, and there's a lot of twisted and unwell people in it. But I'm hoping my book will raise consciousness in our society, and especially about the problem in patriarchal religion. All of the churches, the pastors, priests have supported and enabled my husband. Church members, my ex-husband's brother, brother's sister, especially Peggy Warner, who's a Eucharistic minister in Washington State, I reached out to the Washington Archdiocese yesterday and said, I would like apologies. I would like to receive counseling. I would like her, yeah, especially domestic violence counseling from some of my mentors who are trained, they train um, in this. And I would like her to make public apologies and I'd like her to restore my good name. And his brother, Stephen Warner, also goes to the same church and the whole family has enabled him all these years while I have just been fighting for my life. And this is normal. This is mm-hmm. normal to domestic violence victims. There's something wrong. Very good at shaming and blaming victims. And that needs to stop. It needs to stop. Mm-hmm. Or that we, we share our voice. And hopefully the more we can document, speak out. I hope this will turn around. But um, my book site, Bunshia, Making Light of the Dark at Facebook, receives 30 to 40 million views a month. And people write me every day and I help them to get help, to learn how to go into hiding. I 
recommend the good counsel, safe counselors I know who can help them in court, but every one of them has abused, been abused in the church when they go and seek help. And I document in my story from doctors who have studied this, that the church is the most dangerous place to go to as a domestic violence and rape victim. I'll repeat that. The church is the most dangerous place to go to as a domestic violence and rape victim. I was humiliated. I've been shunned. I've been dismissed by pastors and priests. And one time while I had to go get a breast pump after my nursing infant was taken from me, Judge Norblad said he was leaving my three youngest children with me. It actually allowed me to be in hiding, knowing the danger I lived under. And he gave all my children, including my nursing infant, to a man who had not helped take care of the children, um, my ex-husband. But I went with another woman to his pastor, Pastor Ron Sutter in Monmouth, Oregon. With my breast pump in hand, I was suffering. Uh, the breast pump wasn't working. To have your nursing infant taken from you abruptly is the most extreme shock. I'm still in shock from it. But I asked him, could you please have my ex-husband please bring the baby just so I could nurse it, just so I could nurse it. And he said, no, God does this to some women. This, this is meant to be, it's like there's a reason for this, that God, God did this to you. That mm. just some of the most deplorable people I've met are in the churches. They're the people I sought help from. Wow, what a story. I feel so bad and I'm, you know, not surprised about the church allowing this or shaming you. I'm just, do you know what I mean? I'm just, I've heard so many um, victims say that, that the church goes along with this. Yes, they do. I heard a story once about a woman who got a restraining order and her husband was arrested. And the church raised money to, for his bail. He got out and he finished the job. He murdered her by the church's help. The church is uh, so behind on these issues. Maybe they want to be. Maybe their Bible, I believe their Bible, the submission of women, men's headship. Uh, I was taken during this time, I had a severe postpartum depression to Chicago, Illinois, to live at the Bill Gothard Institute, who they all believe in this umbrella of protection and the man, that the woman is under the man. And they also exercise me for demons. They punished me by, they made me in the hotel where this institute is. I had to clean all the toilets. I was followed by teenagers. So I was watched all the time. I couldn't call anybody, but I did escape. Oh. I knew I'd die there, and they exercised me for demons, also called me a witch. Um, years ago in high school, a lot of the teachers and my fellow students were going to Bill Gothard uh, conferences in Seattle and Portland, Oregon, so I was exposed to that, but literally ran, and ran when I was at that institute in, um, it was in 1994, and I speak about this in my book, but I left out of the back door. I did have change enough for a cab. I got to the airport told them my name. I knew there was a round trip ticket and I got back to Portland, Oregon. You can't do that now. I didn't have ID with me, but they pulled up my ticket and I got back to Portland, Oregon. I didn't die in Chicago, Illinois. 
Um, and then my brother, I did stay with my brother for a while. He was also a fundamental Christian, so he also exercised me for demons. I am just astounded by the lack of education by many, many people in the church that people didn't see my need for a doctor and treatment and compassion. And basically, I do believe that the church has a problem with this, that they need to harm and further harm domestic violence and rape victims. So I recommend people seek safety elsewhere and not to go to the church. And I speak about this in my book. I do give documentation and, and uh, examples, but often many people write, read my book. They said, well, I go to a good church. I'm sorry, what happened to you? And I said, well, at your good church, I was in the back room with your abusive pastor having to kneel on my knees in front of him while he called me names and humiliated me. And I wrote about it in my book. So now you'll know about your good church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and hundreds of stories. And I recommend to all people, um, protect your children from the church. There's an epidemic of rape of children in the Catholic church and the Christian, especially Southern Baptist church that's just recently been exposed. But I recommend people um, watch the films um, that document these horrors. Um, the film that they did out of Boston, um, the journalist that exposed the Boston Globe that exposed uh, the Catholic church. Forgetting the name right now, but I do mention it in my book. And there's another movie about um, deaf children in a school. Um, many of them. It's a, a movie on HBO called Mea Culpa, Silence in the House of God. And these young boys left leaflets on the parishioners' cars. They went to the district attorney. They told the priest they were being raped. Not one helped them. And that is how sick our society is. And finally, Years later, there was a film made about them. In the beginning of the film, they're signing and they're just crying. They can't speak. But I find even in my own life, I kept asking and asking for help and no one showed up. And thankfully, Dr. Barbara May came in my life and she was an expert in Oregon on a recovery of women that has suffered domestic violence, rape. She's advocated for me for years, wrote affidavits in my court file, nothing helped. Even a woman judge took away my right to write my children, send them gifts. Judge Paula Brownhill of Astoria, Oregon. She was probably worse than <laughs> Made a mistake and even in a lawsuit that harmed me for years on end. I tried to write her. I tried to speak in court. Um, nothing could help. I've, I've not had an attorney. So I just did my best with documenting and speaking, but it's very horrific in court to be standing next to the man who beat you and you land in another room or who raped you while you were catatonic and um, who threatened your life, who dragged you through cults, who threatened to take away your babies if you got safe. And there his family was and his mother and his brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and his and the churches and the pastors sitting behind him. And many of them had never been in our home. Many of them had never even talked to me. And one of the worst things is I have son-in-laws who support my ex-husband. They came in my daughter's life maybe years after I left, and they even write comments on articles in newspapers in Oregon. When there's been articles, they'll say this woman is a liar, and her husband's a pillar of the com- her ex-husband's a pillar of the community. And uh, I'd like you to take this article down. Her children were never harmed. And one of these people, my son-in-law, who married my um, one of my first children, uh, Rachel, 
is Jesse White. He works at the Grand Ronde Reservation in Oregon as an engineer. I've contacted their domestic violence group. I contacted their PR people. Nothing has happened in the last 10 years. So I published his letters and I published the response letters by women who've been abused in the workplace by my ex-husband. They wrote Jesse White, how dare you? This is what happened to me. This is what I saw. And um, other people wrote too, but nothing's ever happened. He's not been held for slandering me and for standing up to an abuser rapist. And uh, so I published his letters and I may write write his tribal leaders there um, for Oregon or uh, for October Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but I believe they should confront him. And that is shameful. I, I just find that deplorable. And he enables abusers. And I will share one thing. It's mentioned in my book. My three and five-year-old daughters were raped. And when I was pregnant with my eighth child and was back in the home in 1995, my daughters came to me and begged me for help. And they always knew I was a safe person. I taught my children by words and by appropriate books at different age levels about appropriate touch and non-appropriate touch and to come mm-hmm. to, to come to me for help and I will help them. So they came to me and I got my older son out of the home. And I eventually got a friend, a court reporter friend from Longview, Washington. I said, Addie, I need your help. I need to get to an attorney secretly. And I went to an attorney to help my daughters and to get help from my older son. And Pastor Bill Hurd from Roseburg, Oregon, who was my ex-husband's counselor and who abused me during my severe postpartum depression the year before. And my ex-husband threatened that I could not go to law, that I could not report the rapes. I could not stop it. And I went to an attorney and reported it. And eventually he wanted me to get a restraining order too. And it was a very, very scary time. The restraining order was overturned by a judge who got a National Crime Victims Award. He was in Oregon, but he said he knew I feared for my life. He knew I'd been raped, um, but he's overturned the restraining order because I guess I didn't check some box at the very fine print at the bottom. But uh, I tried to live for a month in a bedroom with a different lock on the door and a different phone lying in there in a refrigerator with my nursing baby. His mother, my older daughters, who were also abusive to me, were there. And I, I could not survive that way. So I went into hiding um, until the temporary custody hearing. But I find it just appalling that people like Jesse White, a lot of um, people in my children's life, even teachers at Christ, um, the Sanium Christian School in Corvallis, Oregon, one teacher stood up in class with my five-year-old son, who hadn't seen me for a couple years, and said that Zachary had not made a Mother's Day gift because his mother abandoned him. And mothers of us knew me, and they called me about it. But even that school would humiliate my children and even lie about me. And I've confronted them, but nothing, of course, happens. But Jesse White, I, to him, I have the juvenile records of the crimes that were committed against my children. My older son was arrested. Sadly, nothing happened to the pastor or my ex-husband for trying to hide the crimes. Um, now that pastor in Roseburg, Oregon, I hear from other, his other victims. He's counseling sex abuse victims for patriarchal um, fundamentalist schools. And I find that just deplorable, too. but it just is ongoing. Um, just the people in my story, what they've done, what they get away with, with. And all I can do is use my voice. And I believe it's just as important 
to expose enablers as it is the people that have committed crimes against us. Mm-hmm. I that. Safety, safety, safety first. <clears throat> I do believe it's just as important to expose the enablers. Because they stood silent while they all this went one in the same. They are one in the same. Right. Right. I might read just a, a, one of my favorite quotes from my book. And if people go to my website of coralonacatil.com, they can go under my bio and read different excerpts from my book. But one is about um, trauma recovery and healing. It's an excerpt from the beginning of my book called The Gift of Healing is Our Birthright. And I dedicate this to you and to all the trauma survivors and victims. We're both. We're both victim. We're both survivor. But I write in my book that the traumatized person who accomplishes the work of recovery and healing has the potential of becoming more integrated and more aware and conscious than the person who has endured no blatant trauma and has never had to piece together a shattered psyche. Healing is the process of rounding up all the fragments of our shattered self and reconciling them. So I everyone's survival and in this world society most likely won't help you and if you go to the church they will harm you and if you go to the courts they will harm you mm-hmm. work environment they will abuse you because you're different you lost your children you must be a drug addict a criminal an alcoholic you must have abused your children i and a million other women who've suffered this same trauma of losing their children in the court system are none of the above but the system and our perpetrators, they do do this to us, um, and it's ongoing. And I hope someday my book is dedicated to my children and grandchildren, and I hope someday they can sit with a licensed, knowledgeable counselor and learn history. Right. And you had mentioned that a female judge you know, took these kids away and then made you pay child support on them. Well, it was a, a male judge, Judge oh, sorry. Morblad at first from Salem, Oregon. He, he was my judge because my ex-husband's attorney, Mark Lawrence from McMinnville, Oregon, shocked for a judge. They dismissed six other judges mm-hmm. that may have been more balanced. But Judge Norbland was known for, known for 30 years of taking babies and children from good mamas. And so he was my judge. He was, um, he was an obscene man. Oh, at last definitely. About- and then tells you in court, because six doctors came forward, neighbors, friends, affidavits. Um, I passed all of my court-ordered psychological, psychological exams. My ex-husband had failed his. But he tells me, leaving my young children baby with me. And then 10 days later, I get a court order taking them all away. And I was with my brother in um, near the Dallas, Oregon. And we were at his cabin. And we were at a phone booth to call my attorney of what had happened. And I remember my brother telling me, what the court order said. And I remember just running in the woods, screaming. Mm-hmm. I believe in the seventies, I watched the, the edition of Roots when it came out. And I remember mm-hmm. those scenes and that's nothing like this, that mm-hmm. horrific of a baby taken from a mother and taken to another plantation. But I remember seeing those scenes and um, being speechless. Mm-hmm. Something very similar happens to me, and I have to go to a hospital to get a breast pump because I will not live with my abuser. I could live with my children. Even my ex-husband and his attorney 
ridiculed me about my severe postpartum depression in court. And I kept saying that was then, that was a couple of years ago. This is now. And uh, they would say, well, you're welcome home. If you want to live in the home, be married. But if you leave, you cannot have your children. But then they also called me crazy and mentally mm -hmm. ill. And yet they wanted a crazy, mentally ill woman to be in the home taking care of the children. There was another incident. I was working 50 hours a week at a warehouse after I'd not long before I'd birthed my, actually my 11th child, but eighth living child. And I'd hemorrhaged, almost died at that birth. My husband at the time, I didn't want him in the hospital, but had to, still married to him, but he uh, wanted the doctor to save the baby's life, not mine. And my trusted doctor told him they would throw him out of the hospital, that he was going to save both of our lives. But I was in the hospital for three days, hemorrhaging, and I had IV, Pitocin. Um, I was in a state, even six months later, and I was forced to go find a job. I had not worked outside the home because I wasn't allowed to. Um, I'd been a court reporter, been trained as a pilot before my marriage. But uh, and the only reason I married the man is because he brutally raped me, and I was in a fundamentalist a society of friends telling me I was damaged and I need, had to rape my, or had to marry my rapist as Bible instructed. I don't believe any of that now. I totally walked away from patriarchy, but uh, very damaging ideology around me that continued to perpetuate the abuse. So when I left, I needed to walk away from that, which it, what it harmed me and patriarchy had. And so I do speak about patriarchy and the dangers, and even in our political system, that the extreme fundamental biblical ideology that they want to impose on the rest of us is very dangerous. But um, I also want to share, if people ask me what it was like, I write in my book that taking a nursing baby is like pouring oil on a woman, dousing her in oil and setting her on fire. And mm -hmm. one of my even said taking a nursing baby is just very similar to castrating a man mm -hmm. never goes away and I'll sadly tell a lot of women they do write me what has helped me what has helped me heal I say I go on I don't move on I don't forget I go on I created a beeswax business I mm -hmm. catered for the wounded warriors for the last 13 years I've written for Leatherneck magazine the Marine Corps magazine on PTS TBI suicide prevention I've written about racism in the Montford Point Marines. I visited wounded warriors in the VA hospitals and on a volunteer basis, wrote dozens of articles with them and for them. I go on, mm -hmm. pain never goes away. And I've had night terrors up to this day, 25 years later. And the fact that my ex-husband, his church, his family, his brothers and sisters, my mother-in-law, teachers, Christian teachers have brainwashed my children to despise me. Is a crime. I do believe in many countries they are changing laws to even um, include covert abuse, that which isn't beating, but there is extreme mental emotional abuse, which I also suffered. I'm glad that some societies are evolving, but ours definitely isn't. And I, I tell women, yes, um, at my age, the pain, it shifts. It's uh, you lack hope. You know, most likely you will never see your children. I hear from friends. I don't follow Facebook pages of my children. Um, I know they don't want any part of my life. They write me hate letters, tell me I'm going to hell, that I'm a dirty dish rag and a tool of Satan. 
And uh, so I accept that's where they are, their journey. Um, I don't believe hate is a good energy to, you know, operate from mm-hmm. Christian ministries. And some of them have supported my ex-husband who hid crimes in our home of rape of me. He had crimes of beating me. He had crime. He had crimes of my daughters being raped. Uh, so they support him and they're in Christian ministries. Um, one of my sons, Joshua Warner, operates uh, Baseball Northwest out of Silverton, Oregon. And I was told by my editor, who was at my court case four years ago, uh, the 50th court case, that he and his wife were there in the courtroom. And uh, one time my son Joshua had a website at Corbin University, a fundamentalist college in Salem, Oregon, saying, I was born of Marty Warner at Albany Hospital. I have eight brothers and sisters and being raised in a large family was easy. Well, the first 20 years when I was in that marriage, I was beaten. I was sleep deprived. I was dragged through eight cults. And when I was pregnant with Joshua, I was literally blind. My eyes were taped and I'd lost my eyesight. And I didn't know when I'd get it back. And my doctors told my husband, please don't get her pregnant. We don't know how we are going to help her heal. We don't know what's wrong yet. And I was forced for sex, marital rape, and I was pregnant. So Joshua, when he says it was easy, it wasn't easy for me. Day he's going to have to face that. And the fact that he supported my abuser, I've not been allowed at my children's weddings, their graduations at high school. One time I dropped some gifts off at Santa Am Christian School when my daughter, Teresa Warner, was graduating. I saw my ex-husband and his brothers and sisters, mother-in-law, all marching into the gymnasium to go. And the only person not allowed was me. I'll give another example of how complicated it gets. My 16-year-old at the time, Joshua Warner, in 2003, um, he wrote me secretly. I don't think it was illegal at the time by email. And he wrote me 10 times a day. He, his cousins had given him my email. His cousins had read my memoir. And so he wrote me. He wanted to be in contact with me although I live under an address protection program from his father. And I was in Oregon at the time because I had ongoing court monthly. My ex-husband wasn't suing me or going to the Oregon State Appeals. It was just ongoing court. So that's why I was back in Oregon and I was homeless. But I told Josh, he asked me if I'd come to his football game. He was captain of the team at Saniam Christian School in Corvallis, Oregon. And I said, I'd love to be there, but I'll be on the other side. I won't um, be able to speak to you, but I will be so joyed to be there. Well, I went to the game. I wasn't near anyone. I was farther away. It was public ground. So I believe anybody could be there. And he ran off the field and hugged me. And he was so excited to see me, wanted to talk to me, wanted to go to dinner with me. And a few days later, I got contempt orders from my ex-husband and his attorney. I was sued and I was threatened jail time for hugging my son. Now, if I'd run away from my son, people would have called me crazy, mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Hugged my son. I'm also in the wrong. So... It's, there's been just incredible dynamics to survive this and it's been exhausting, but I am hopeful just in the fact that I have my voice and another friend that's my same age even wrote me, uh, Donna Busio. she wrote nothing but my voice. And she said at this age, Coral, all we have is our voice. We mm-hmm. also have integrity, but we have our voice and it's powerful. People write me every day and they've read the book. I have friends of my children who write me who are no longer friends with my children after reading my book and were afraid of my ex-husband. And they were just scared of the extreme fundamental uh, religion and Christianity. My children um, 
believe in. Um, I've received many letters from pastors who abused me of other women who were abused by the same pastor who also lost their children due to the pastor supporting their perpetrator. I've, um, yes, mm -hmm. I received a lot of letters through the years. I'm so glad you came onto this podcast and I'd like to have you back on again. Um, how can people reach you? Um, they can go to my website at www.coralanikatheill.com. They can go under my bio or my media, media link. And I'd also recommend to everyone, especially people who are still supporting patriarchy, to read the introduction to my book that was written by Christoph Defoe and Sean Prophet. They were also men who escaped cults years ago. And they interviewed me. Their podcast is at the front of my website, but they wrote an incredible introduction. And I recommend everybody read that. It's available um, for free to read at my website. And uh, would you like me to read something in honor of October Domestic Violence Awareness Month? Most definitely. Yes, I will read that. I posted something today in honor of this month. And uh, I... I believe we all need to end the silence. Mm -hmm. Domestic violence still affects one in four women and three are murdered every single day by a current or former husband or partner. Hundreds of thousands of these victims suffer in silence. It's time we speak up and speak out. We can't solve this alone. We all have a voice in ending domestic violence. Together we can make a difference. Keeping secrets only protects the abuser. Abuse does not deserve privacy. If violence cannot be talked about, it cannot be stopped. 25 years ago, I sought safety from a long-term abusive marriage. I'm still standing after 24 years of legal abuse and stalking, 50 court hearings of legal, 50 court hearings to date, including an Oregon State of Appeals case, the loss of eight children, including my nursing baby, threats, poverty, homelessness, betrayal by family, friends, and pseudotherapists. Since then, there's not been much change in the judicial and religious systems that perpetrated the abuse I've suffered. I continue to receive letters from women who are being abused by the same judges, pastors, and Christians who abused me. My last court hearing was April 2018, Polk County Courthouse, Dallas, Oregon. As long as we continue to condone those in power who harm and victimize innocent people, then we will continue to witness injustices against those who are vulnerable and unable to protect and defend themselves. I believe my own life and experiences these past years reveal a moral dilemma for the religious organizations and judicial systems that exist today. For recovery to begin, abuse victims must create a safe environment. Without freedom, there is no safety or recovery cost. The man who had repeatedly abused our children, assaulted me, raped me, and threatened my life stood just a few feet away from me in court. No protection measures in place, nothing. My ex-husband used Oregon's family courts to continue his campaign of terror against me. My case speaks loudly of the insidious crimes that are legally permitted and condoned under the guise of church and state sanctioned domination of males in marriage. The message that the current Jewish judicial system gives to many domestic violence and rape victim is that they are not worthy and that no one cares. Our culture of shaming and victim blaming needs to stop. 
I have the greatest respect for women who stand up to tyranny and oppression and fight for freedom and justice. Often they battle alone with children in tow and with the enemy entrenched in their home and in their minds and sleeping in their beds. These are the extreme and painful conditions under which I and women all over the world set out to make their escapes from domestic violence and terror. And even so, right up until today, the bravery of women, the cruelty of questions like, why don't you just get up and leave? Instead of being given the admiration their struggle deserves, battered women may lose their babies and children, their homes, their friends, and their livelihood. Survivors of childhood abuse often will lose their families. Rarely does society recognize the dimensions and long-lasting effects of this reality for the victim. After over a decade of personally seeking assistance from advocacy groups on a local, state, and national level, the advocacy system, as is, has offered me nothing. The past 22 years has been an incredible journey from darkness to light. Through my journey of making light of the dark, I have had the privilege of meeting extraordinary individuals who, like me, are human, flawed, spectacular, and deeply compassionate. I am grateful for their assistance in my survival these past many years. Most importantly, they helped me heal the imbalances created from past wounds and see my past from a new perspective. Every form of abuse has a long-lasting effect on each one of us. Individuals who escape abuse and torture deserve the utmost respect and support. These people have risked it all to heal and stand up for the truth. They are heroes and angels who hold a horrific reality for everyone else. They have suffered and escaped, and for that we should bow. Listen to their stories. I have learned to value the horrified scars of my childhood and past as valuable raw material for soul work. When the pupil is ready, the teacher arrives. Mm-hmm. And there's one more um, post I shared that's about um, Sandra Bloom. It's just a paragraph, but it just describes a summary of what the systems are and why we fail so horribly. And mm-hmm. Dr. Uh, Dr. Sandra Bloom shares it so well. I'll find it here in a second. Here it is. This is a quote from my book. Dr. Sandra L. Bloom, author of Creating Sanctuary, argues that psychic health is virtually impossible in our society because we have become desensitized to violence. We have normalized repression and we have created institutions that repeatedly traumatize the most vulnerable among us. She dares to define violence as more than sexual, emotional, or physical abuse, allowing our citizens to go hungry or homeless denying them a quality education or medical care, and tolerating laws and policies that perpetuate these conditions are all forms of abuse. And in closing, I'd like to recommend um, to read A Women Who Run With the Wolves by Dr. Clarissa Estes. And another good book is Trauma and Recovery by Dr. Judith Herman. Oh, I thank you so much for all of this and your sharing of your story that is so it's just so sad that you had to go through that and be put through that i i'm just so very grateful you wrote this book and i'm proud of you for coming on here 
All of because <laughs> I have a copy of it right here. And- it's beautiful. Yes. Oh, yes. So people read it or go to my website and there's many excerpts, especially the introduction. I highly recommend. And my book is recommended by Dr. Barbara May and other professionals for judges, ministers, pastors, priests, social workers, colleges to use and read so that they can help to be a part of changing laws and helping, truly helping domestic violence and rape victims not have to live the lives we've had and the path we've gone down on. And I do believe um, just by writing that you leave a trail bridge. If I hadn't done that, it'd just be wrong. You must leave a trail bridge for others to follow. And this has been a really hard, hard path. Oh, I bet. I bet. But, you know, I hope these judges and pastors and priests who, you know, they learn from this, you know. Well, some don't. I, I yeah. My escape was in 96. So what is that? 26 years. There's never been an apology. Nothing. Um, yeah. That's, uh, I guess, the depressed depressing part to look on yes i continued um i continued to believe in miracles surprises impossibilities and one fine day for us Mm -hmm. well hey um don't jump off slam the gavels of podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again in the future here with Coral Anika Teal and other exciting guests. Thank you, Coral. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate you too. Thank you. For being a voice and being a voice for truth and shedding light on da- in dark places. You and I have to do this. We've got to do it.